0: Hola. Hello! Bienvenidos, Bienvenidos a Entredos.
1: a podcast about raising bilingual children. I do like to read with my mama. I'm Monica. And I'm Paula. Welcome to Entre
2: Dos, a podcast about raising bilingual children.
1: Dual language education can be a way to both sustain cultural heritage and acquire a second language. Today, there seem to be more of these programs popping up in different parts of the country, but they're still not accessible to most.
2: The good news, as you'll hear from today's guest, Fabrice Chaumont, is that as parents, educators and members of the community, we have power to advocate for such programs. It's not an easy task, but it is possible. Of course, where you live may have an impact on your efforts.
1: New York, where Fabrice lives, is one of a handful of states with a bilingual mandate, meaning that public schools with a certain amount of students in the same grade with the same home language must offer transitional bilingual education. This mandate has helped push the growth of dual language programs in the state. In the past decade, several states have begun to require bilingual instruction in public schools, so check the legislation in yours. Fabrice
2: is a French educator, researcher, and the author of the book, The Bilingual Revolution. He has helped start a number of dual language programs in New York City and continues to help parents in the U.S. and abroad who are interested in bringing these types of programs to their public schools. Today's episode is the first part of our conversation.
1: Fabrice, thank you so much for speaking with us today.
0: My pleasure.
1: The bilingual revolution uh, really it, it highlights the parent and educator empowerment, and and that that's kind of like a thread that that puts together sort of all of these efforts that you lay out in the book, and they really sort of are the groundwork for these programs that 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 you talk about, and it was just really refreshing to see. That as parents, we can also be activists for our children.
0: Definitely. We have, um, particularly, particularly in this country, in the U.S., uh, parents have power. So they just need to realize that that part. Um, but, uh, you know, in, in many countries, and I was I just came back from China, it's not the same type of relationship that you m- may have between parents and schools. Uh, sometimes... Uh, I know in France, for instance, uh, parents uh, stay at the door. They don't, they don't get to get into school or participate or, or, you know, give their two cents about such or such program. So we in the U.S. are quite lucky in a way. And parents need to know that and, and embrace their power.
2: You yourself uh, were involved in the creation of New York's first French English dual language programs, correct? Could you, well, in, in public schools, could you talk a little bit about this and tell us how you became involved in these in in these dual language programs to begin with?
0: Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, I got to uh, I got to New York in two thousand and one. I was a school principal in Boston for a few years before I moved to New York and and. I met a few uh, French parents here, who just um, the, the the only options back then were private schools, uh, which you know are great schools here in New York. But um, obviously, um, if you could, if you can't afford that uh, thirty thousand dollars a year, and and then you're out, and you're left with um, trying to raise your kids with uh, your home language and. And, and, and many people do that, but uh, having a school that helps you in uh, continuing that, that bond, that linguistic bond between yourself and your children, um, that helps a lot to have a school that does that. And, and the parents at the time, French parents came to see me uh, and, and they knew my background, they knew my um, connections with uh, the French government as well. And they thought, well, perhaps together we can, uh, we can convince a, a school in New York, a public school, that will, uh, that will help us set up a, a dual-language program. Now, there, there had been dual-language programs uh, in New York City before that. Uh, I mean, there were many Spanish dual-language programs and a few Chinese dual-language programs. In the same year, there was a, a Russian dual-language program and another one in um, Arabic as well. And uh, so we so we got together and and, and, and uh, you know we did our homework and lo- looked at the numbers that we had. We, we had to show uh, enough interest from the parents to to get a, a school principal interested. And at the time it, this was under Mayor uh, Bloomberg and the Chancellor back then was uh, Joe Klein, it was all about um, um, accountability, giving powers to to the school principals and letting them run the schools the way they wanted. So in a way, Bloomberg and Joe Klein cut down all the bureaucracy and, uh, and you only had one person to convince and that was the school principal. And if you gave them a good display of uh, your community's interest for two-language education, and that involved uh, know, a significant number of parents with children entering kindergarten and then younger kids as well. Then, then you know, if you showed that you had support, community buy-in and uh, sponsors as well, then, then the schools would, be, would would be interested and they would welcome a program like that. And that's what happened to us with um, PS58 in Carroll Gardens and, uh, and 24 kids, one kindergarten teacher. And that was it. This was our, our bilingual revolution. And, uh, and today we have um, 10 schools with French two language education um, going all the way to high school now in New York City alone, and then other schools in other cities have, have, have joined us since then, but in other languages as well, and I can talk more about that if you want, but uh, the minute we were successful with, um, with our program, then other communities thought that they could get the same thing for, for themselves, and that's how the Italians, the Germans, the Japanese, the, the Koreans, the Greeks, uh, all came to talk to me, and then that became the stories uh, that I talk about in the book.
1: Fabrice, you mentioned how local politics had a, you know, a big influence in in this in initiating this movement because they gave yeah. the school districts a lot of freedom. And for instance, you know, last year we saw the repeal of an English-only initiative in California that had been in place for decades. And since then in the state, the availability of dual language programs has almost doubled. And I wonder if you have any advice for for activists and and parents, you know, that maybe at the state or even district level, you know, to really maybe to develop policies or, you know, Mm -hmm. more homegrown sort of a movement that can encourage linguistic and cultural diversity, both at the local level and maybe even the state level.
0: Yeah. Well, what I found out was that there are three types of groups uh, among the parents. You have um, the parents who want to sustain their heritage, their linguistic heritage, and uh, and, and they're pretty much uh, invested in, in creating dual language programs. Then you have... Uh, the, the the families were seeking English language uh, education. They're, they're the children that don't speak English and they need uh, dual language education to help them uh, become fluent in English. And, and then the third group is uh, the, the non, well, I would say the English speakers. Uh, sometimes you can call them the monolingual English speakers. And those families are interested in Raising their kids bilingual or trilingual or multilingual, so those those are different perspectives can join forces in uh, you know convincing a school or convincing a, a a district or a school board, and sometimes even more. So that's pretty much like a bottom-up approach, and that's the the, the approach that I talk about in the book. Is you know you can start. At the grassroots level, and get parents uh, engaged and then educators engaged. But but other states like uh, Utah or North Carolina or Delaware have a, they have a top top down approach where they saw a need for multilingual citizens and creating uh, global competencies in in their, their new generation, particularly. On the job market, where they they realize that if you speak several languages, and you have more opportunities, and 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 it's good for it's good for the child, it's good for the family, it's good for the community, but it's also good for the city, or the, the state, and for that matter. So that's why a, a state like Utah has created uh, hundreds and hundreds of dual language programs in Spanish, in Chinese, in Russian. And French and German, just because they realized that this was going to be good for their economy. And particularly as an enclave state, they thought this was good investment. The same thing happened with uh, Delaware, when uh, the governor of Delaware uh, saw that um, the corporations were no longer uh, opening shop in Delaware, and because they, because they could not find a multilingual workforce, so that led to creating uh, language immersion programs, just to remedy that that issue. Because uh, the the more uh, that's, that's the, the the thing about policy policy has to be based on something, and I think more and more uh, it is based on uh, economic development. Uh, so that's that 's something that parents can definitely um, use to their, to their advantage when they're they're having to face uh, convincing the local the local authorities about uh, dual language education it's it 's good for children it 's good for schools but it 's also good for business and it 's an important uh, argument
2: and that 's somewhat of an evolution right of these programs and you touch about you touch upon that on your book because some of these programs started and maybe some still are mostly about getting english language learners to speak english and not about Mm -hmm. teaching those two languages so it it sounds to me like what you're saying is that there's been a little bit of an evolution in the way that these programs are seen in the country
0: definitely it's no longer seen as a remedial um, type of program uh, with you know bad connotation put on it, uh, it's it's something that everyone wants and desires, and even in places like Brooklyn, uh, you, you have long lines of parents you know trying to get in those programs. So this is very different from what it was uh, 20 or 30 years ago in the U.S., where no one wanted to put their kids in those programs, and um, Actually, back then, it was more about um, l- speaking English, learning English, and even forgetting about your home language, and, 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 and you hear stories of many, many parents who chose not to speak their home language to their kids. They chose you know, not to transfer their linguistic heritage to their children just because they wanted them to become English speakers or American. So there's a process of assimilation, Americanization, but also this is disruptive of uh, our roots and, and origins so that to the point that, that, that their children were no longer able to have a, a proper conversation with their own parents or grandparents in, in, in their home home in a home language um this is this is an attitude that has definitely uh evolved over the years and now uh perhaps it's a process of globalization perhaps it's a you know post 9 11 feeling i don't know but there there is a, a change with and particularly for immigrant families that that they they, they want to maintain that that heritage and no longer want to waste it. It's a shame that it goes to waste, that it's squandered because our schools are not ready or our society is not welcoming. So now um, I think that's why those programs are becoming more and more popular. And because monolingual America is now opening up to those programs more, then that is Strength to uh, immigrant families in, in to maintaining that that heritage, yeah. and that's that's a, an interesting development I think, and that's why um, more and more programs are opening every year in this country, and in in other places as well. Uh, I can give you other examples from France or even Japan, for instance, where people people are thinking in terms of multilingualism rather than a monolithic, monolingual approach.
1: And and Fabrice, you know, in, in, in the book, you talk about things like, you know, race and, and poverty and gentrification and also identity, right? Which is what, what you know, yeah. you were mentioning before about how that sort of your sense of identity as a parent is something that you want to pass on. Um, and there's an urgency to that, that I, mean, I know I feel that, you know, with my daughter and, and Spanish. And... One of the things that you mention is, you know, making sure that these programs that are in very high demand right now, and I think, I mean, that applies to pretty much almost everywhere in this country right now. I mean, where I live, there's wait lists for bilingual um, programs. I think in Houston, where Paula is, it's the same situation. Yeah. And, And how do we ensure that these programs remain, you know, egalitarian and accessible, right? Because, you know, it, it, it has to be, it can't be based, ideally it would not be based on just your zip code. You know, it would also be based on the fact that, you know, it's 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 everyone's right, right? To to be able to do something like this. So how, how, what have you seen in regards to that, maybe even in in, in New York?
0: Yeah, I think it's, <clears throat> it's very important that, Bilingual education is for all. It has to be for all. It's not just for one segment of the population. It has to be for all, and in true respect of uh, of our diversity and, our, and and our and our differences. They, unfortunately, particularly when there are zoning systems in place, uh, you see. The effect of gentrification and, and zoning um, playing out, and not in a good way, when uh, a certain program will attract uh, um, one race rather than a diversity, and, and and that that doesn't have to be that way, and and and, and that that can be disrupted somehow. But the the, the zoning, it's hard to, to fight against. Different systems, particularly zoning in, in, in New York, uh, where you have to live in the in the school zone to get in, and then sometimes there are you know, discretionary um, measures taken by principals to allow people from outside, from uh, from out of zone or out of district, and that that is a good idea for a dual language program. You you need to make sure that this there is diversity and that it's 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 serving. Everyone, and it's serving uh, all, also all classes, not just uh, uh, upper class versus uh, lower class. That, that doesn't have to be uh, that way. Um, it's, it, those programs cannot be bubbles as well, bubbles within the school, because that, that can't work. That's the best way to create problems within your school, particularly, and I speak as a former principal, this, this 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 has to be harmonious and and serve the entire school community but it's 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 hard these, these are there these are good questions that you've asked and it's tough to remedy um quality programs whatever the, they are i've always attracted um, um you know people with means, and, and and it's it's difficult to to create uh, fairness and, and equity, um, particularly if the system is not fair and equitable in the first place. And that's, that's something right. in New York. There's a lot of talk about that and, and, and creating more equity uh, within the system. But um, my, my concern is that I don't want to see it, Dual language programs being used as as uh, unequ- unequitable, and therefore they have to be terminated because they are not. <laughs> that's the wrong uh, uh, culprit in a sense. Uh, these are programs that have never, you know, been about injustice. It's quite the opposite. Most uh, dual language programs have always been about creating bridges between communities and, and, uh, and respect and, you know, fostering, fostering tolerance. So, so there, there, there's a definitely a fine line and, uh, and it's not, it's a tricky, tricky program to put in place and, and to make it work right as well. It's very difficult, but definitely um, it should not be reserved for an elite or, or something like that, that that would work against the, the founding philosophy of these, these programs.
1: Right. One would hope that the reaction to something like that would be, well, let's just make more programs. But that's that's kind of <laughs> expecting but a little bit.
0: That has its consequences. That's what uh, we've experienced here, because more programs means... Um, Having to find more teachers, and, and we right. can talk more about that. But that that that's the number one issue is where do you get the teachers, and then and then uh, if you don't have them, where you know, how do you create those teachers, and and uh, do you work internationally and try to import teachers from all over the world with a visa program? Is that possible even? Um, and will it work with their teaching credentials? Uh, these are very tough uh, things going on right now, particularly in places like uh, Utah or other other states where you know because because those programs have been developed on an industrial scale, um, we need to have uh, teacher teacher programs teacher development programs in place to to make sure we we can grow uh, and have enough uh, human resources to to teach in them. But that that's a big, big issue, not just for the U.S. It's, it's a big issue everywhere.
2: That was, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things when I read that in the book that you don't think about, you talk about teachers, you also talk about space being something that you need to sta- establish one of these programs. You need... Space for the students, and you need just so many resources. And it was really eye opening to read the massive effort that these parents put into creating these programs. Sometimes, a, a one that their kids don't even get to enjoy by the time that the program gets established.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's that's heartbreaking, particularly when uh, I hate to see those program or those initiatives fail because. Um, you know that the parents have done it for them, for their children. They've worked very hard to make it happen, and sometimes, sometimes, unfortunately, it doesn't work, or it doesn't work for them, for their kids. It works for the, the generation after their their kids, yeah. uh, a year later or two years later. But and that that is hard. That is hard because um, it's a waste, uh, and and people feel like like. Like it's a waste because they of course there are other ways to raise your kids multilingual you can do it from home you can do it on saturday schools and and, and but it's not the same uh, as having your your kid go every day of the week in uh, in in a, in a school and, and learning two languages with other kids we do the same so that's that's a different thing and it's a shame when it's not you know when it's not materializing, when it's not happening, um, but um, but there's definitely something to say about uh, the role of parents and the role of mothers in particular. Um, um, now there are fathers that are very active and very successful, but but definitely mothers mothers make these programs happen, and um, and um, and now there's definitely. Uh, Mama con poder, <laughs> mothers with <me.
1: laughs>
0: that's, that's what I, I feel like when I, when I work with mums. Um, with uh, I'm currently um, helping uh, Italian moms uh, in uh, Harlem, and Greek mums in Astoria, and Korean mums in Brooklyn. And uh, now I'm following another mom downtown who wants to create a Spanish dual-language program. Definitely mothers. Um, are the, the, the pole bearers, the, the pioneers in this um, bilingual revolution.
2: Thank you, Fabrice, for joining us. Next week, we'll bring you part two of our conversation where we discuss some of the misconceptions surrounding dual language education and what it really takes to establish these programs.
1: Make sure to check out The Bilingual Revolution and the website TheBilingualRevolution.info. It has great resources and all the case studies in the book.
2: As always, we invite you to join us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Entredos Podcast. ¡Hasta la
1: próxima! ¡Nos vemos!